0: I'm grateful to the worship team, and also just wanted to express my thanks to you as a church family uh, for having me, and thank you for uh, making me feel welcome. So several years ago, when the Lord called us, I've been at uh, Ogletown Baptist for around 11 years now, and when we were, we were down south, I was an associate pastor at a church there, and when uh, I knew we were going to be transitioning up to take the pastorate at Ogletown, I got an email while I was still there at my previous place, uh, and it was from Pastor Rick Bino, who was pastor of uh, Hocas Baptist Church at that time. And he uh, just said, we're praying for you in your transition here and want to welcome you, and let's get lunch when you get up here. And shortly after that, I met John, and shortly after that, I met Terry. And uh, I have really, really appreciated just the friendships. And then uh, a short time after that, I got to meet Pastor Mal as well and every one of the pastors of this church, have been so so encouraging to me, and uh, I greatly greatly appreciate what God has done here. I, I really do count the pastors more than just colleagues. We're we're more than just doing kind of the same thing in the same area. I feel like these are these are really really good friends and uh, really really good partners. And I want you to know as a church family that we pray regularly as a church for Sycamore Hill. We pray regularly that God would God would make you successful in and your desire to grow and spread and mature, and it's a privilege to do that. We want you to to be successful, and we want God's kingdom to expand through your work here. And also, because Pastor John is one of my favorite preachers, so I'm kind of a a preaching nerd. I love listening to preaching, but one of those that I listen to pretty pretty regularly is the podcast. I, I know that you're fed regularly the word here. And so it's my goal to do just that today, to share God's word with you and and to take us deep into it. And as I've talked with Pastor John, he wanted me to continue on in the the series in 1 Corinthians. So I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. And I feel like it's probably worthwhile to have some sort of introduction because 1 Corinthians isn't always an easy book and it, it changes gears a good bit. So you probably know, but the book is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, a church that was in Corinth, which is uh, modern-day Greece. Because it's a letter that he wrote, it's somewhat of a one-sided conversation. So you can imagine that that church probably wrote him asking questions and asking him to address some issues. And so what we get is his response to that. We're kind of hearing it one-sided, and there seems to be several issues at the church in Corinth, I would imagine it's much like any church, although this church in the, in the New Testament seems to have lots, lots of problems and, and lots of things going on that Paul has to address. And it takes him a couple books to do it, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In 1 in Corinthians 7, there seemed to be, and I know Pastor John's been teaching on this, a faulty mindset that, well, because... Christ is coming back, then maybe we should just stop, stop doing things, like even stop getting married because time's too short. And, and so Paul addresses some of that. But in chapter 8, he turns the corner and he does address issues and he does it with the pastor's heart. And you actually see what issue he's going to address in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 by looking at, at verse 1 of chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's just look at the first few words there. Paul says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, and then most translations are gonna have a colon there. What what that means is this is kind of a heading for something that he needs to address, and likely they've asked him some questions like well what we have some questions or we have some concerns or we need some guidance on this whole issue of food offered to idols. For us to understand First Corinthians eight, we're going to have to inhabit a different world than we live in. In Delaware in 2018. So I'm going to ask you to, to mentally, like, let's go back to Corinth at the time of the Roman Empire. Let's go back a couple thousand years so that we can really understand what Paul is saying to us. So, in that time, there, there weren't elaborate means of preserving food, especially meat, like we have today. So, so generally, meat, the meat offered to idols, that, that's not a common part of the diet of anybody in Corinth, or, or certainly not many people. So it's not commonplace to have meat. What is commonplace, though, is if we're walking and we're taking the grand tour of Corinth 2,000 years ago, we're going to see idols everywhere. We're not, we're not going to be able to go about 100 yards without seeing another one, and there's another one. And it's to this God, and that God, and this God, and that God, and there's all sorts of gods. And we're going to see that all over the place. In Corinth, we pass one of the one of the temples in Corinth, and we might see a person walking in carrying some sort of animal. And and again, this is different than our culture. So they're bringing the, the animal into a, a place of worship, and, and they're going to sacrifice that animal in that place of worship. So there's something religious going on, right? So they're, they're offering devotion to their God, paying some sort of debt or allegiance to their God. But there's more going on than just something religious. There's also something uh, even commercial. So the temples were a place where like power and influence and like means and resources were exchanged as well. So the person bringing in some sort of animal may get some sort of commercial transaction. And it's not just that, but as, as we walk and we look in that, uh, that temple and we see the idol being sacrificed to and we see uh, an, an animal being sacrificed, there's, we, we may notice a, a whole group of people around the person bringing the sacrifice. Because often temples were social gathering places. So what would happen, and there are several like, rooms off the side of temples, and as archaeologists have dug up the ruins of Corinth, they've noticed like, one, one temple even had 40 different smaller rooms where a family goes, and part of that they offer to God, and they take part of the meat, and they just have a family and friends meal. So it's a social occasion. So do you see, if you live in Corinth, if I live in Corinth, a lot of life is going to be wrapped up in the temple and idols I mean, it's commercial, social, religious, all that comes together. And then the gospel goes to Corinth. The gospel goes to Corinth, and people begin to follow and obey Jesus. They begin to believe the message that a man is risen from the dead. And it changes everything. And it does change the people that once were worshiping at these temples. We're going into these temples and making sacrifices. And, and when Christ comes, Priorities change. Even our conscience changes. Like, and so the, you can imagine the questions in Corinth are like, well, what do we do now? What does it mean to follow Jesus in, in this setting? Are, are we allowed? Are we still allowed to eat meat? What if a friend invites me? Are, are we allowed to go? Should, should we go or, or, or not? We don't believe in the idols anymore. We're following Jesus. You can imagine that church family is asking some tough questions. So if I back out of Corinth and I come back into Delaware in 2018, I have to think, like, this issue of food and temple and idols, like that just doesn't come up in my life. If we were planting a church, I know when I've been to Asia, when you plant a church there, often you are dealing with this very issue, temples and idols and food. But in our setting... I can tell you, I have a lot of moral dilemmas. This would not be in the top hundred of moral dilemmas that I would have. What should I do about the whole food and idols thing? So I don't have this particular issue. But what what I want to make sure we don't do is we go, well, that just sounds so far back then that there must not be anything for us now. If we can get past the presenting issue, which is food and temple and idols, and get to the core issues. I think actually what Paul is saying is there are some things that actually don't change regardless of the setting, regardless of the culture, regardless of how many millennia pass. There's some things that actually don't change. And I want us to zero in on some of these core issues. So so with that in mind, with that kind of background uh, of what's going on in Corinth and what's going on for followers of Jesus in Corinth, let's begin to walk through these verses. So verse 1 says, and again, I hope you have it in front of you. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and then in quotes most translations will have, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, then he's known by God. What is Paul saying here? So he's addressing this food offered to idols. And he quotes a slogan. And I don't know if it's a slogan in Corinth or something. Maybe they even wrote in their letter to him. Like, well, we all possess knowledge. Paul says, yeah. We, okay, so we all possess knowledge. And, and the people in Corinth were saying, well, since I know, I know that temple's no big deal. I know what's going on there is not, not anything. It's just a, it's just a statue. It's just, uh, there's nothing going on. I can do whatever I want. I'm not affected by all that. So I can come in and out of that temple. I can eat whatever I want to because I have this knowledge. I have superior knowledge. And Paul doesn't dispute their knowledge. But, but what he presses in on is this, and this is again where we kind of walk through the presenting issue and we get to the core issue. So here's the core issue. It's always easier. Church, it's always easier to acquire and accumulate knowledge than it is to Love. That was the truth in Corinth in, you know, what, 60 AD? It's the truth now. It's always easier to pile up knowledge and acquire knowledge than to do the real work of love. They're saying, well, it's all about knowledge, and I know I'm okay. Knowledge has this way of giving us an inflated sense of ourselves. We live in a pretty highly educated part of the country. So we, we know this. Knowledge puffs us up. Sometimes we act like we're somebody because we know something. We get some information that not everybody has. And we begin to walk around like we're in possession of something. And I'm sure they'll tell you when it's time. But I, I know some things that are going to happen. I can't say anything about it. Oh, you didn't know? I'm sorry, I can't say anything. But, but the time will come. I'm sure someone's going to tell you and let you know. We do that. We do silly stuff with knowledge. And we do dangerous stuff with knowledge. And it, it, it pushes to our pride. Paul says, it's not about what you know. It's about love. And I don't know, I don't know if churches can hear enough an admonition and encouragement to love. I don't know if we can hear it too many times, like, well, we have yet another, yet, yet another encouragement to love. Why do I say that? Because, because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what he said. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and mind and strength. And if you had said, Jesus, was there another one that's just like it? He would say, yes, there is another one just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, yeah, and don't just love God and your neighbor. Love your enemy. And then in the upper room, he would have all his disciples before him, and he would be pouring out his his life to them and caring for them and serving them. And he said, this is how all people are going to know that you're, you're my disciples, that you follow me. And it's not going to be because of the knowledge you have acquired. It's going to be because you love each other. Paul will walk through the fruit of the Spirit, what it looks like when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're changed by The work of Christ inside of you and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he would say the fruit of the spirit. And the first one he's going to name is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest is love. And John is going to say in his first letter, 1 John, he's going to say, look at what love the father has given to us. So So it only makes sense that the Father has loved us this way, that as we follow Christ, we would love others. And the writer of Hebrews is going to say, let's continue to gather together in Hebrews 10. Let's not forsake that. Let's not neglect that. Let's prioritize it. But as we gather together, what we're gathering for is not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but to stir each other up to love and good deeds. Love, love. Love, it comes again and again. Love builds up. Love makes things stronger. Love doesn't seek its own advantage. Love looks out for others. Love means devotion and sacrifice. Love, so what love is never is, love is never smug. Knowledge can be, but love never operates in that. Love doesn't ever like accumulate to the such a point where you go, you know what? I've kind of arrived with this thing called love. I don't think any more is required of me. It just never works like that. It keeps pressing us deeper, and so Paul says, "So you've got knowledge. Knowledge just puffs up, but love builds up." What's interesting as he talks about knowledge is he reminds us of an aspect of the gospel. He says, "But before we leave this topic of knowledge and love, can I can I remind you of one thing?" He says to the Corinthians, "It's not about your knowledge." But if we want to talk about knowledge, what matters the most to you is that God knows you, that you're known by him. If we want to talk about knowledge, that's the most important piece of knowledge in the universe, is that God knows you. God knows you from eternity past. God knows your weakness. God knows your strength. God knows the burdens that you, you, you carried in here and that you'll leave with. God knows the deepest griefs of your heart. God knows every cell in your body. God knows the pressures that you have. God knows what life stage you're in. God knows the, the ambitions, the priorities that you make. God knows all of that. God knows. If you don't yet know God, and I wouldn't assume in a crowd this size that everybody everybody knows God. there, there is no magic formula, no like secret password that this church is in possession of, that, that can give you that now you're in the in-club. It's, it's just not the way it works. Actually, the message that this church preaches, the message that we preach at Ogletown, is the message of a God who, who knows people, who knows people from eternity past, knows them in their sin and in their rebellion, and sends His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, on a rescue mission. And Jesus lives and dies and rises from the dead, to reconcile us to the Father, to transform us from the inside out. What's amazing is this Father who knows us invites us into a relationship with him. Jesus would say, come to me. Turn from everything else and, and come to me. Trust in him. If you don't yet, if you're even uncertain a little bit of like, am I known by God in the way he's talking about? You might have a friend you could talk about this more, maybe even over lunch, or maybe you talk with one of, one of the pastors or, or one of the leaders here, and you say, well, what does this mean? I, I want to make sure that I'm known by God. It's always easier to acquire knowledge than it is to love. But th- th- there's, a, there's more to this issue of food and idols, and I want us to keep reading. Look at verse 4. So 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4. So Paul kind of pulls, therefore, in light of what I've just said, therefore, As to the eating of food offered to idols, it's like he quotes another one of their slogans. We know, yeah, we all know, that an idol has no real existence. And we know that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We get another glimpse into their mindset. So they're, they're, they're pretty proud of their knowledge and what they know. And so they've even got these, these slogans like, yeah, we, we know an idol doesn't have any real existence. We've come to the place where we know that now. And we know there's only one God We know that now, and Paul affirms their theological statements. He said, you're right, there is only one God. A lot of pretenders try to portray themselves as things we ought to be devoted to and our hearts ought to be given to and we ought to find security in. And and you're right, there is only one Lord, although there's lots of things we listen to and submit to. But again, let's get past the food and the idols which are the presenting issue. And let's take one step deeper because I think what Paul is telling the Corinthians and reminding them is it's always easier. It's always easier to make correct affirmations about God than to see everything in our lives as from God, for God, and through Jesus. It's always easier to make a correct affirmation about some belief we have in God. For Paul, it's interesting, as you read any of his letters, for Paul, prepositions seem to really matter. So he's not just trying to pile up some words, he's not trying to meet a word count in this letter. When he says, from God are all things, and for God are all things, and through Jesus Christ are all things, and through him we exist. Paul's telling us something. He's telling us that for the people of God, for the people who are in Christ, we have a father. Yeah, I, I, I hope we all have the correct affirmation. But more than just a, a verbal affirmation is a reality that we have a father. And everything, everything came from him. He's the creator of everything. Nothing is outside the realm of his control and power. And that almighty God invited us to be related to him just as a child is related to their father. You can take your affirmation, and those are important, but what's more important is the reality of a relationship you can have with your father. We live, everything comes from him, and we live for him. We exist for him. So yeah, let, let's get the right affirmations, but do we realize that our very existence, someone has said, our very existence is for his purposes? We just need to be reminded of that because I make a lot of decisions and you probably make a lot of decisions based on what you want, what you make, what, what makes you happy. And Paul is reorienting all of that for the church at Corinth and saying, no, 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 you exist for him. And in the same breath, he says, we have one God, and it's amazing. It's amazing. He says, we also have one. We have one Lord, and it's Jesus Christ. And he puts Jesus on par with God. So they're co-equal and co-existent. And he says, we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the one and only Lord. All things come through him. So everything that was made was made through him. that's what John 1 says, and Hebrews 1 says. And he says, our very existence is a new creation. Yeah, that came through him. We need to remember this. We need to hear these words. We might be tempted to accumulate knowledge. We read, we're enlightened, we have good answers. We say the right things in small groups. And we're, we're kind of proud of the affirmations. In a church like this one, the Bible is central. And I so appreciate that. It's one, one reason that holds our churches together in such partnership and your doctrine is on target, and the affirmations are all right. But over time, it might become easier and easier for us to hide behind going to a solid Bible, Bible teaching church and forget there's more. Our purpose is not just to make some sort of affirmation. Our purpose is to live for the Lord. We exist for Him. We can't afford to forget that. We can't afford to forget that our, our lives come from God. Our existence is for Him. If, if we're living that way, then it our lives will be filled with gratitude. We will regularly be reminded, like, what do we have that we didn't receive? Our, our lives will be filled with, with dependence. So prayer isn't like, well, I guess I'm supposed to say a few prayers each day, so here goes the, the perfunctory prayer that I'm going to say. Check. No, we'll realize our very existence depends on our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And also, we'll pray to our Father in the name of Jesus, and we'll do that regularly. When we grasp that our whole purpose of life is to bring God glory, it'll humble us. I remember working at a camp. I I worked at a Christian camp for four summers, kind of end of high school and the beginning of college. It's the camp where I met my wife. But I remember before camp would start, each day before breakfast, before lunch, before supper, we would, we would say a verse. We would say 1 Corinthians 10.31, and I remember it you know, all these years later. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And so we have a summer before us, and we say, I've got an agenda. I've got some things I want to do. And yet, do we, do we call to mind that we exist for God's purposes? What, what might the Lord want you to do with your summer, you, you have a job, you have a position, you have friends. What, what does the Lord have? You have skills, you have talents. We realize, right, that all those came from the Lord. What, what does he want for you? You exist for him. I exist for him. It's always easier. It's always easier to acquire and accumulate knowledge than it is to love. It's always easier to just make the correct affirmation about God without our hearts really be given to him for his purposes. And Paul's going to press in one more place in this chapter. Look at verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul's going to press in here. It's like, wow, the Corinthians had this slogan, we all possess knowledge. He's saying, but, but," however, not all possess this knowledge. He says, some, some of you, some brothers and sisters, some, some that had just come to maybe faith in Christ, some through being formerly associated with idols, you yeah, when they eat food, as really offered to an idol, their conscience is weak and it's defiled. Yeah, yeah, we might know food, food doesn't commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and we're no better off if we do. But take care, be careful. He's saying to this church, be careful that this right of yours, to eat whatever you want, doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And stumbling block isn't just like it mildly bothers a few people. This is like it shipwrecks their faith. Be careful. Be careful that you exercise this freedom and and it's to the detriment of someone else. For if, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Paul says, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak, to go ahead and eat food offered to idols. And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. This brother for whom Christ died. So Christ died for him. And do you care about that? Do you, do you love him? That's what Paul's pressing in. That's sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You're actually sinning against Christ. And therefore, if Paul says, for me, if food makes my brother stumble, I'm not, I'm not going to eat meat. I don't want my brother to stumble. It seems like this issue of food and idols, it doesn't seem like there was clear consensus. It doesn't seem like Paul just draws a line and says, black and white, here's what it is, here's what it's not. The, the problem is not about like where the line gets drawn. The problem that Paul sees is like you're drawing lines and you don't care about your brothers and sisters. You just say, I'm okay. I think I'm all right. My conscience is fine. But do you care about theirs? Food, temple, and idols are the presenting issue, but the real issue is this, and Paul speaks to it. It's always easier. Church, it's always easier to assert our rights than the. Lay those rights down for the spiritual good of someone else. It's always easier to say, well, I'm entitled to it. I'm free to do it. Then it is to go, but what about them? How does it affect their faith? And will they be built up by this or not? I remember growing up as a kid and I was somewhat of a smart aleck. And when someone would tell me something I couldn't do, I just replied with a very mature response. Well, it's a free country. I can do whatever I want to do. It's a free country. I don't know how many times I said it's a free country, meaning like no one's going to tell me what to do. And what I find is, although that's super childish, like we just find grown up ways to cover that. And we still want to go, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. I know I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want. How do we apply what Paul is telling us here? How do we obey Jesus? So I'll tell you, as a pastor, I've not caught too many church members going into some cult temple, eating food, saying, well, we need to have a talk about this. That, that's not the issue. That's not the issue at our church. That's not the issue here. So how does it apply? Well, there, there are lots of issues where Christians draw different lines. We know this, right? There's lots of different places. So I don't know if Paul wrote to us. I mean, he might address like our entertainment choices. Some draw the line here. Someone draw the line there. He he might address what we wear. He might address like how we spend our money and how many luxury items we have, how many pleasures we think we're entitled to. He he might address many, many, many things. He might address what we eat. He might address our consumption of alcohol if you were writing to our churches. But more important than me trying to create potentially comparable scenarios, I want to press on our hearts to think about what we do, does it build up others? Or does it tear them down? You see, what, what Paul's calling us to do, whether it's food and idols or, or anything that may present itself in 2018, what he's calling us to do is a lookout not just for our own interests, but the interest of others. What Paul is saying is it's more than just about you and your personal relationship with Jesus. It's more than that. He's called you to follow together as a family. And and do you care about your family? What Paul's holding out as a real goal for the Corinthians is for them to have a mindset that the people in the family of God matter so much. They matter so much that you have the mindset, I have to care about others. I know they have different backgrounds. I know they come from different struggles. And I don't just write that off and say, well, I'll do what I want to do. I don't care where they come from. We can't afford to have that attitude. Paul says, no, no, you, you have to care about their background and their struggles. And Paul would say, we, we have to take care of how we exercise our freedom because of others. We don't get a pass to go, well, I'm free. Not a law against it. I can do what I want. Paul says there's so much more than that. I, I, I can't enter into places and environments while knowing I could contribute someone to sin. So, someone leading to sin. I, 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 I can't lead my life in a way that it might lead to someone else's spiritual destruction and them walking away from their faith. I, I can't just sin against my brother in that way. I can't damage their conscience and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, when, when for them they're still wrestling through these things. And I can't end up sinning against Christ. Paul says, is your brother or sister thriving? and maybe even surviving spiritually, or stumbling and shipwrecking their lives, does that matter to you? Does that matter to you more than food? Or does that matter to you than some freedom that you want to exercise? This world is tough. I think one of the most grieving things as a pastor, and it probably happens, I don't know, once a month, is to see someone who had taken some steps of faith initially begin to fall away. It's just so grieving. It, it always is painful. And what I realize is temptation is, is ext- extremely real. And I never know who may get lured back to the world. I, I never know. And so what am, what am I going to do to care well for their faith? Paul has a lot, more, a lot more to say about this, and I'm sure over the next few weeks you'll unpack some of this. But I, I just want to leave us with a few questions and then we're going to take some time to pray and, and Terry will close our service. But here's the questions I really want us to think about. Do we, do we really love each other? Do we really love each other? Because Paul said love is what is going to build this body up. So look back at the last week. What, what in your life said this past week? That I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love my church family. Do we really love each other? And another question from this passage is do you really see your life as from God and for God and through Jesus? Or maybe you've kind of written yourself a declaration of independence. You're just kind of on your own, you're freelancing. Or do you really see, no, my whole existence is from God and for God? He's the source, He's the goal. And Jesus Christ is the mediator and everything, everything is about his kingdom coming, about his will being done, about his name being honored. Everything about my life is about that. One more question is, are we willing, are we willing to serve our brother or sister? Even if it means not doing what we want to do, even if it means laying aside a right, we feel like I I could do this and it'd be no problem. But to serve them, oh, I wouldn't. I'd go the extra mile to serve them. I'd sacrifice that for them. This brother for whom Christ died, this sister for whom Christ died. Can I ask you to bow your head and just ask the Lord to speak to your heart? Allow me to speak this prayer over us as a blessing. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how high and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Listen, in Christ's name we pray, amen.